This episode is part of our ongoing series with NI Connections, where each month we have the chance to sit down with someone interesting from Northern Ireland who's living and working overseas. To find out more about our global diaspora, listen to previous episodes in the series and sign up for a free monthly newsletter. Please visit niconnections.com. Thanks so much and really hope you enjoy today's conversation. Wow, that is a good question. Well, probably the first thing that comes to mind is um, I had two big brothers. Um, at family reunions, I'm affectionately called the mistake. But <laughs> at my, least it's uh, affectionate, you know. <laughs> yeah, my mom says she tried for me, but I don't know. The boys <laughs> say something else. So, um, yeah, I have two big brothers, and uh, they're seven and nine years older. And so I always just, I just wanted to be them. That was that sure. was pretty much how I grew up. Um, you know, they were better than me, everything, and smarter, and you know, just one step ahead. So I, I grew up uh just always wanted to emulate them and um our our house was a big uh, sporting household <laughs> so my um you know if it had a ball we played it so my grandfather was a really good golfer really good footballer he played for Belfast Celtic I don't know if that means anything to you but yeah it's a, it was a, a big deal certainly in the era he played so um yeah, so we had a we had a big sporting kind of connection, and my 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 dad was uh, pretty athletic, but also like a really great coach. So he invested in us. So, you know, uh, I think I got my first golf clubs when I was two. I think oh my probably was kicking a football by the time I was two or three. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing track and field, so uh, running around the track twice pretty fast. But um, yeah, so I think most of my memories are probably either related to my brothers or related to some sort of sport somewhere, you know, played a lot of field hockey, as we call it over here. You just call it hockey. Um, So I probably should just call it hockey. Um, (laughs) I don't know. You know, we're trying to make ice hockey big here, you know, it's so maybe we'll need the definition in a a couple of years time. You never know. (laughs) I've been to the ice hockey. It's very good. Giants are very good. Um, Yeah. So lots of, you know, sport day, sports days popping into my head at at Lauren Grammar where I went to school um, and, and older fleet primary school where I went to primary school. But, um, yeah, probably school, sport, and 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 big brothers are nice are one. all the things that pop up. And so, like, do you remember the moment, or even like loosely, like the thing that you finally were better than your brothers at? <laughs> well, here's here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. One of my big brothers um, became an Olympic athlete and was in the top oh, ten in the world for eight hundred. That's just not fair. So that, that was a wee bit. That was a wee bit tough to uh, compete with. Um, Oh, I don't know. I don't know what we're all good at now. We're uh, we're all over the globe. One of them, uh, one, uh, one of them, James is back home um, uh, in Northern Ireland, and then Diva is in Australia, and then I'm in America. So, uh, you know, on if if you were just to look at it geographically, it does look like we all tried to get as far away from each other as possible. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so we're we're all over the place. But I'm not sure what I'm better at than them. Uh, given that they'll probably listen to this at some point, whatever answer I give you will likely start World War Sixteen yeah, in our house. Huge debate. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Last. So, yeah, you know, that's the curse of the younger sister. Always, always. So, I mean, talk to me about school and childhood. Then, outside of sport, what else kind of grabbed you? You know, I was a really try-hard kid. Yeah, uh, you like, yeah, you like I swatting, was... or what do you mean? Oh yeah, all of it. Wow. So, uh, affectionately, some of my friends in America call me Rushmore. Um, 
if you've ever seen the movie Rushmore. Um, yeah, basically, if you made a club and it had a title and a position, I tried to join it. Wow. That's pretty much the end of that story. So I was uh, I was in the conservation club. I was in the debate club. I was in the French debate club. I was in um, I was in the uh, every sport: football, ball- volleyball, uh, hockey, running, cross country. Um, well, let's drill down into conservation then, because that's kind of niche. So, what's that all about? <laughs> you know, the main reason, if Jimmy Christie ever hears this, who was in our, who was the teacher that ran that club, the main reason I joined the conservation club. And look, I have a lot of time for environmental topics, but the main reason I was twelve, right? So, uh, the main reason I joined that club was because you got to go away overnight on a kayaking trip. Unbelievable. Um, and if you ever kayak down the rivers of Ireland, they're some of the best in the world. Yeah. It doesn't get any any prettier. Um, and so as a wee nipper, the idea of being able to kayak without your mum and dad and then camp overnight. I mean, that was basically oh, Glastonbury as a kid, you know what I mean? <laughs> that was like, and then you did the ratio of how many, you know, students to teachers. And you were like, I fancy our chances here. Yeah, we uh, can get, definitely get away with this here. This could be great. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I wish I had a more, uh, you know, altruistic reason for joining sure, the conservation yeah. club. But yeah. uh, I, that was actually why I joined it because it had a really good overnight rafting trip. Mate, we do love that. Like, funny, I was kayaking recently with a mate, and he said, "Oh, mate, this is just like Canada." And I was like, "What do you mean it's just like Canada? Like, this is Northern Ireland. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, just enjoy it." <laughs> it's funny though when you grow up. You know, it's it's true of everybody everywhere, right? When you grow up there, you take it for granted, and there's a lot to take for granted in Northern Ireland. But um, yeah, when you when you leave, you get perspective, right? That's you know, there's there's good things about leaving and bad things about leaving, and when you leave, you get perspective, but. You realize what you took for granted when you're there, you know, and even though I've been to tons of different places in the world, you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland, it's just, it's one of the most beautiful places and it's right under your nose and it's so easy to access, you know, it's right mm. in front of you. So uh, I do miss it. That's one of the things I miss the most for sure. So uh, in as much detail as you are comfortable sharing, why did you leave? What's that kind of arc? You know, um, the honest truth of that is my... My dad was a big presence in my life, um, and he uh, he said to me he had a very unique viewpoint on on Ireland and our history. Um, my dad was actually in forensic, um, and you know, being in forensic, he he was one of the guys that set up the fire and bomb lab in forensic in the early seventies. And being in um, being in that line of work in the seventies and eighties wasn't, you know, you had you got a very unique. Uh, perspective on the troubles let's totally. say um, and so my dad just said um, get out of here and see see the world and see what everybody else does and how they live their lives and what real struggles exist out there and and I don't want to in any way put down the you know the, the struggle that we've had as a country but when you see the bigger picture you know you realize there's a lot less to fight about than you think. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so he just encouraged me to get out and see the world. Um, uh, and he said, the thing is, you know, you can always come back. We'll always be here and you can always come back. You'll always have home. And so, you know, I really appreciate that. It's the idea of like uh, roots and wings. Mm. Um, so for me, it was all about seeing other parts of the world. And sport allowed me to do that. You know, I was lucky enough to be pretty good at, at running around a track. And so I got to run all over the world. Um and then, uh, you know, and I followed my big brother all around the world. And then, you know, uh, I went to work in London and uh, somebody offered me a job in America. And I was like, you know what? I've never been to America. I probably should just go and do that and see what it's all about. Um, what was the job and what state did it take you? 
you know, it took me to Oregon, which is where I live now, Look 14 years later. So, but I, I met a guy, um, I was actually at a track meet, an athletics meet, and, um, you know, a guy said, you seem really into this. And I was like, I am, I love it. And he was like, well, would you ever work for Nike? And I was like, yeah, of course I work for Nike. <laughs> what, <laughs> like, you're like, what type of a question is that? <laughs> I know. I said, and then he said, he said, well, would you go anywhere in the world? And I said, yeah. I didn't even think about it. I was 24, 25. I was like, sure. Epic. Um, do you pay me when I get there, basically? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, Nike scooped me up and um, they actually ended up putting me in London for a year and a half. And then they put me in their U- They moved me to their US office and their headquarters is in Oregon. And I came out here 14 years ago. And, you know, I would say in the first five or six years, I just traveled so much. It didn't really feel like I spent that much time anywhere. You know, I was lucky yeah. enough to go all over the world with Nike. So, um uh, and then since then, I've just made Oregon home. And o- Oregon's not, you know, it's not dissimilar to Ireland. It's uh, it's very similar in terms of landscape. The people are quite similar. Um, yeah, so there's a lot that feels like home here. But uh, yeah, I guess I liked it enough that I never left. So I'm still here. That's cool. Not to be like a complete fanboy and this was accidental, but I just started listening to uh, Shoe Dog because everyone in the world tells me to listen to it. <laughs> And, so, you know, I think that a lot of the opening of the book that I've got through so far, he just talks about the nature of Oregon. I'm like, mate, this sounds absolutely unbelievable, but also a wee bit similar. So it sounds it sounds pretty good. What did you do for Nike? Like, what was your professional capacity that you were able to, to uh, do with them? Yeah, I mean, probably what I'm best at is brand marketing. So um, building a brand, building a community, uh, building an emotional connection with the consumer. Like, those, those are the things I love to do. And and I tell you what, um, Nike was a pretty good place to, to yeah. build that skill set. Um, actually, before I worked at Nike, I was at um, I worked on the Premier League in in uh, London for Barclays. Barclays owned the the rights around that, and so I've been really lucky to only you know only work on things that people love. You know yeah. that people get super excited about, um, and you know that's what every brand marketer dreams of. Like you don't really want to go and market, you know widgets or hoses or That's you know it. yeah it, I mean, just, like, it just hits different when you're like oh i'm the brand marketer for insert big insurance company you're like ah oh, okay good for you but if you're like yeah nike or premier league people are like whoa well it's just cool to you know I, I always wanted to just impact people right and change their lives that's definitely been a common thread for me and and hopefully even if it's just five percent make their lives better um and so, you know, both those brands give me a chance to do that. And then obviously I went and built my own company and, and, and that's had a pretty massive impact, I think, on the people who touch it. So so talk to me about like emotionally connecting to a brand. Like give me a wee, a wee bit on that as, you know, all the experience that you've had in this space. Why do we have an emotional connection to the things we wear or the things we buy, you know, even on that level? I mean, that is a phenomenal question. Um, I think the first thing is... Um, most of us generally humankind is a fairly positive thing you know when we mm. when we when we're born we we don't come out inherently negative we come out fairly positive and optimistic and i i think generally the human condition wants to be better now how you want to be better looks different for everybody yeah right that might be through the lens of performance that might be through the lens of kindness that might be through the lens of you know um discipline or like you can come at that any way you want but i think generally is as a population we we want to just continue to evolve and learn and be slightly better and so in order to be a bit better you have to look at something that's one step ahead of you right and so that's what a great brand does is it it always tries to stay just one step ahead of you and just uh, that's where inspiration comes from so that's probably the first thing that comes to my mind and then the second thing is believability you know 
whichever way the brand chooses to do that, you have to believe them, right? Because yeah. if somebody turns up on your doorstep and, and, and tells you something, you have to believe them, right? Like if you've never met them before, <laughs> if there's no trust, if there's no relationship, if there's no relatability, if there's no charm, you know, all those elements that make you believe somebody. But when you believe them, you know, the difference between getting a piece of advice from someone you really trust and believe and someone you don't, it entirely determines what you do with it. And so a great brand tends to be highly relatable, um, have a high degree of trust. Um, and, and so that when you get that, that's the magic sauce. You know, one, once you've really spent the time and energy to build that relationship with a customer, um, that that's when things get really special as a brand because, uh, you know, you can create real change. I mean, what you said there about, you know, advice from someone you love and trust just hitting so differently is so mad. Like, like I was thinking about this the other day where what is said is nowhere near as important as who says it. And that gives the first time in my life I actually like that, that clicked in my head. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I mean, you know, the story of all the brands you've worked with for amazing. The story of Wildfang is incredible. And I think like, you know, we always love to kind of swap stories, but you know, oh, like what's the origin story of like the name of your brand or like, you know, what's the meaning behind <laughs> this logo? And I have to say, like, I'm just, I'm just outright jealous of the origin story of your name. So for the people who haven't heard that, uh, could you share um, what happened to you and what you experienced from a very young age and how that has followed you through to this company today? Yeah, you know, as a kid, I was um, I was just really lucky. I had two I had two parents that really invested in me, um, you know, and, and and did a really good job of making sure I felt loved and supported. And it was only later in life that I really realized um, there were gender differences in the world, you know. And I I wasn't raised that way. Um, I was raised, hey, you want to. What, what career you want to go do, go do it. Right. You awesome. want to, you want to play that sport, go play it. You want to, you know, there was never a line drawn between me and my brothers. Um, and so that's really rare. And then I realized as I grew up, um, you know, when I was a bit older and actually it really hit me when I came to America, if I'm honest with you, um, I realized that actually the experience of most young women in their, you know, uh, high school years is actually, you're not skinny enough you're, you know, you're not pretty enough, you're too fat, you're, you stand out, you know, don't stand out, don't be a slut, don't be this, don't be that, you know, and, and none of, you know, men typically aren't exposed to that. Not there's all sorts of other gender stereotypes sure. men are exposed to, but, but I just realized, I recognized my privilege pretty quickly that I'd been, I'd been sheltered from all that. Um, I was never made to feel like there was a career that was out of reach for me because I was a woman. Um, I was never made to feel like I was second best because I was a woman. And, and that's not a lot of people's experiences. And when I realized that I was like, you know, that sucks. Um, that really does suck. And, uh, I think the experience you're talking about is one day I was with my best friend and, uh, we were in urban outfitters, just a big store over here. And I wanted to buy a cool graphic tee like just a graphic tee with some attitude. Like for me, <laughs> if I can fall out of, you know, if I can stumble out of like Keith, like Keith, Keith Richards or uh, Kate Moss's like wardrobe in the morning, like I feel, you know, I've succeeded. Um, <laughs> and so I've just always been inspired by that kind of like androgynous rock and roll flair um, and, and cool factor. Um, and so uh, I wanted a t-shirt that just was kind of bold and edgy and I was going to get it oversized and, I walked through the women's section and I was like, Oh my God, this is depressing. Like everything in here has, 
like pastel wildflowers on it and and like that's cool if you're into that but choices wouldn't be a terrible thing right like for the for those who aren't into pastel wildflowers there was something they could wear um and so I end up just by pure chance I end up in the men's section and um there was this really rad very uh provocative picture of Kate Moss kind of rolling around in bed giving a middle finger to the camera and just she just looked cool as hell um and I was like, yeah, I'm going to get that. And then my best friend at the time was looking for a blazer. And it's pretty much impossible, or certainly in 2011, it was pretty much impossible to get a good blazer in the women's section. And so, you know, what I mean by that is you may not know this, as uh, I believe you identify as men, but um, in the women's section, none of the pockets go past your fingernails, you know, because God forbid, God forbid you should want to put anything more in your blazer pocket than a fingernail. Um, what the you heck? Know, never mind a never mind a phone and all the bo- all the buttons are fake and it, they never have real lining and it, they're just kind of a disaster and so when you go what's to the men's the, section the, everything what's the thought behind that like what's the logic there i think it's shrink it and pink it really? i think is what what they call that i think it's just like let's take something that was really good over here and then just sort of half-ass it and give it to chicks and they won't notice wow. um and so you know when you go to the men's section you get these nice deep pockets you get interior pockets you get great lining you get great tailoring you get great buttons you know and and she put on a, you know, she's five foot tall and she put in like a hundred, 110 pounds and she put on a blazer in the men's section and was like, she, you know, she looked, it, it was ridiculous. Um, and then I put on the graphic tee and, and it had a really high crew neck and really tight hips. So I couldn't wear it. And, and that was just a moment for us where, there, where we kind of realized, wait a minute, there's all these products that for some reason we're only exposing half the population to mm. when the other half might want to buy it. And in addition to that, it seems like there are probably some messages that that young women need to hear um, that they haven't been told by other brands, um, whether that's related to body type, whether that's related to career, whether that's related to styling, whether that's related to sexuality. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we can come at that, right? But um, yes, yeah, so, you know, our company's called Wild Fang. Um, and uh, the word for us, you know, you mentioned the word, when we, when we saw the word, we just couldn't tell if the word, I mean, originally it comes from German, but we just couldn't tell if the word was like a rock band or a kid's book. Like it just felt, <laughs> it just felt cool, you know? And then we realized we could use it as a noun and a, and a adjective, right? So like, oh, that's so wildfang or I'm a wildfang. And, and so it just kind of stuck. It just, it, it, it sounded bold and edgy and rebellious, which is what we wanted, but it also kind of sounded safe and, 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 and like there was a community behind it. And we want we wanted to tell people both like, it's so easy to tell people like F the rules and just, you know, throw sure. your middle finger up and rebel. <laughs> but, but actually to say, Hey, throw your middle finger up when it makes sense. <laughs> um, and also, you know what? Sometimes it's okay to need a hug. You don't need to be this hard ass the whole time. And yeah. so for us, it was a bit of both. It was a bit of reminding women that we all have each other and we have a community and we can rely on each other. But at the same time, we're going to break a few rules when they need to be broken. So, I mean, there's one thing in observing this and seeing this huge gap in the market and huge gap in the culture. And then there's the other bit is like then actually going and doing it. So how did you actually go and start the company? Oof, I've tried to block that period out. Um, <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm still dodging my therapist on this one. A hundred percent. So, uh, I, I mean, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is I said to me, uh, we had this idea in our outfit, and I said to my mate, "Well, that's great. You should totally do that. Good luck with that." I'm on the, I'm on the gravy train at Nike. You know, that's I'm headed for, 
I'm headed for a VP in marketing and, and courtside tickets, you know, to wherever I want and, and building these rad brands. So I, I'm really, really happy. I mean, when you're, when you're a little sports nerd like me, um, I mean, I live and breathe sports and then, and then you get a job at Nike, you know, as a wee girl from Lauren and you're like, Oh my days, this is, it does, it just doesn't get any better. You know what I mean? And then they promote you and then you get like to travel. I mean, I, I work with Ronaldo. I work with, uh, all of the Brazilian players, all the Brazilian team, um, Boca Juniors, PSG, uh, Hertha Berlin, like it, Unbelievable. you know, Alison Felix, like it just, uh, I went for a five mile run in West Hollywood with Pacquiao. Like it just, <laughs> it didn't, it just, it was, it was nuts, you know, like we, like, like my mom always says, we girl from Lauren didn't, you know, that, that was pretty uncommon experience. So sure. I said to my mate, I'm not doing this. Like it's too much risk. You go, you go knock yourself out. And look, have your wee store in Portland with, you know, your your uh, your clothes and and you know your Facebook community or whatever you're gonna have, and then I'll work in the store in the weekends, and and that'll be how we do it. And then yeah. I went out and did, um, you know, my background's a lot of consumer insight work, and I went out and did uh, like a year's worth of insight work. Uh, it took me a year because I was doing it nights and weekends, and I just talked to loads of people like in their bedrooms and and in in, in focus groups and stuff like that, and I realized just how many people want it, something like this to exist. And, and that was when it kind of hit me, you know, I finished that insight work and I thought, man, I, all I like to do is build great brands. And this might be honestly the only chance in my life I get to build my own wow. um, because all I've done is, is build other people's. And, and so I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. Um, and it's been eight years and uh, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done and the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And, you know, depending on what day you, you catch me, I would tell you not to not to follow in my footsteps. <laughs> but um, it's certainly, yeah, I, I, I don't regret it. And it's certainly um, changed me and grown me and given me experiences I never in a million years thought I'd have. What do you think, or maybe not even what, maybe the better question is, where do you think that thing in you that makes you confident enough to give it a go and take that risk? Because I would say that's something that I'm going to say it over here, especially is a big block for a lot of people. Well, you know, it is. I'm I'm always nervous how much to say about this and, and my experience of being back home. I I very very much relate to what you just said, and I would say I would say Northern Ireland has so many incredible things about it, and uh. Uh, it's a very, very special place for me. Um, at the same time, one of the things that's tough about it is is that energy that you're talking about. Um, in America, everything's kind of can do. And I'm not saying that's always right, but it, it's a place where uh, you you are encouraged to take a risk. You are, um, you've seen other people do it um, and it's part of the culture and that's not true in Northern Ireland. So I definitely relate to what you're saying. And I would say to anybody listening to this that feels that way, my biggest piece of advice is is try to find a, a little ecosystem within Northern Ireland that, that gives you that, right? Make, make sure you're Absolutely. really careful about the pe- people around you and the people that are putting energy into you because um, that's where it comes from. And if you surround yourself with the right energy, you can do what I'm doing anywhere in the world, 100%. Totally. Um, but you got to be you got to be really careful about curating the energy around you um, because if, if you don't have the right energy, you, you won't be able to do it. I, I do want to just kind of tap into what you said about, like, where does the confidence come from? Um, you know, without question, I owe a lot of it to how my mum and dad raised me, for sure. Um, and, and 
and not put in most of the usual societal things in front of me. But I don't want anyone listening to this to think that it's some sort of like mysterious God-given chemistry. It, it's not yeah. like for me, for me, I, I don't, I don't consider myself special at all. Um, I consider myself fortunate in a lot of ways, but, um, and I work my ass off, but I, I, I don't think there's anything particularly special. I, what I would say is um, rather than focus on the confidence, I would f- ask people to focus on removing the risk. Mm-hmm. Once you remove the fear, um, the confidence comes. So uh, for me, it's really about removing the fear. And the best way that I did that was to allow myself the permission to fail, which is a very cliched thing that you'll read in every business book. But <laughs> when you really, really, really do it, um, when you really, really like, honestly, I feel once a day, once a week, once a month, like it, it's constant for me. Yeah. Um, the question is how you, you handle it. I'm very transparent about failure. I talk to my leadership team about it. Um, I give them permission to talk about their failures. And then when it's shared, what you find is everybody learns from it real quickly. And actually, like I said to you earlier about the human condition, most people don't want to fail again yeah. and again. Like most people want to get it right and want to do better. There are very, 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 very few people that ever fail intentionally. And so for me, once you kind of remove the fear and the failure angle, then the confidence just naturally comes. Um, so I would kind of come at it backwards, to be honest. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I love that. Yeah, I, I do. I, in my head, like, you know, everyone's thoughts just keep spinning. It, the thing that keeps spinning back to me is back to what you said about, you know, when we're born, like there is that sense of like positivity and there's that sense of even wonder, like, you know, uh, I'll do that annoying parent thing. Like, you know, my wee girl is about to turn one and it's been so amazing just to see <laughs> her, like to see the world through her eyes. Again, you'll read that in every book, like known to man. But, you know, everything becomes so amazing. You know, like we literally spent like half an hour yesterday looking at a fly buzzing against the wall and it was like the most captivating <laughs> thing ever. And then, you know, you, you lose that and like things, you know, the, the kind of the shine of the, of life kind of like can, can escape you very quickly. I, that's, I just love the story of... Um, that interesting little thing that is sitting in the Ulster Museum because of you, and I'd love. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna bring that. Ah, up. you're like, there's no escape. Come on, uh, you know, no escape. Talk to me about that peaked, because the, there's, there's a seven. lot in there. I peaked at seven. <laughs> you peaked that at was, seven. <laughs> that was it. Um, you know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna self promote for a second. I gave a TED talk all about this particular topic. So it's oh, um, an unreal TED talk. I'll just back. You yeah. On that so if you want to. If you want to go listen to that and grab some Kleenex, um, you might need them at the end. But um, yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. And I don't have a kid yet, but um, I think that's part of the the joy that comes with them, right? Is everything you're describing. For me, so when I was um, when I was seven years old, I was I was on the beach um, at Macramorn, which is near where I live in Larne. And um, uh, for anybody who knows that area, there's a lot of quarrying. So uh, a lot of the rocks kind of roll down and I told you I was a try-hard kid earlier, so uh, <laughs> nerdy little Emma had spent some time with one of her mum's friends learning about fossils and ammonites and how to find them um, and what they look like. So I went to the beach, you know, to I just love to that, because part of me is just like, who does that? It's just so brilliant. I know. <laughs> so, so nerdy. So I sit, I sit and learn all about fossils, and then I go to find them, and my mum took me with her, and uh, I picked up this thing on the beach. We'd been out there about an hour, and I picked up this thing on the beach, and uh I thought it was a mammoth's foot, which if you ever see a picture of it or you go to the Ulster Museum, you might be able to understand what why it looked like a mammoth's foot. But for me as a seven-year-old, so just so everybody on the podcast understands, this thing is about four inches in diameter. 
um, at the bottom at the base and it's round and then it comes up into kind of a trunk and the trunk is maybe two and a half inches in diameter. And so for me, I thought it was an ankle or I thought the thing that I could see at the bottom was a toenail. I just love so, that. So, you, you know, just, just picture the scene, right? You're with your little girl and she picks up a stone on the beach that she can easily hold in her hands and she says, I found a mammoth's foot, right? And so, <laughs> you don't appreciate it at the time. I do appreciate it looking backwards because there was a whole range of things that my mum could have said to me at that point, right? And I, I don't need to point out the obvious, but it probably wasn't a mammoth's foot given that I was seven and I could pick it up easily. <laughs> um, I mean, that so... would receive massive hands. I don't know. It's, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so my mum says to me, well, look, you know what we should do? We should go to the museum and hand it in and see what they think. What a hero. And again, like, talk about talk about crowning moments of parenthood right there for my mum. Like, of all the things she could have said, that was what she said. Can and parents so win Oscars? Like, Is that a thing yet? Like, because that's legendary. I think she does need an Oscar. We should get, <laughs> we should just make one for her. But, um, so we go to the museum and we hand it in. And then, of course, you know, with her manipulative parenthood, uh, you know, skill, she uh, takes me around the dinosaur exhibition to learn about dinosaurs. So... We hand it in. I forget all about it because you're seven and, you know, you have a 15 second memory. So I hand it in and then I go do the dinosaur thing, which is really exciting and a big call out to the Ulster Museum for being an amazing museum. Um, And so we go through this really cool dinosaur exhibition and then we go home and the next day. Now, at the time, it was this guy, Andrew Jerome, Dr. Andrew Jerome phones our house and I remember all he gets is a piece of paper that says this is a mammoth's foot and it was handed in by Emma McElroy he doesn't get any other information so this phone call goes off and my brother picks it up and somebody says is Emma there and so he passes it to me because you know he's 14 and what does he know so I get on the phone as a seven-year-old and this guy's screaming (laughs) down the phone screaming and my mom you know it's the good old days of landlines right so my mom's like why is I can hear a man's voice screaming down the phone at my seven-year-old girl. So she comes over and snatches the phone. Well, fast forward. He says, this is Dr. Andrew Jerome. Do you understand what, you know, what Emma's found? And she said, Emma's seven. And he said, what? Oh, nice. She's not like a professional fossil hunter. And she's like, no, she's seven. And that was like her second trip to the beach. And he, (laughs) he goes, well, she found a uh, hundred million year old ichthyosaurus skull, and it's probably the best example of such a skull ever found in Ireland. So uh, we should talk about what you want to do with that. And um, uh, he goes, "Can you come up to the museum for a picture with me for the Belfast Telegraph? It's a very big find." And my mum says, "Now nah, we're going to Butlins. We have to get on the boat." So we, we, so we made we our club card come. vouchers have, have absolutely locked out. Like 100%. we're off here. <laughs> hundred percent. She said, "No, nah, we have to go to Butland. So we we are on the we're on the two o'clock ferry. So we uh we we can't do that. So you can do whatever you want with it." So he's like shocked because he like you know people wait their whole lives for this kind of yeah, find, yeah, and we're yeah. off the Butlands. So um yeah, it turned out it was a really big deal. Um and uh, it's still in the museum now, and it still says seven year old Emma McElroy. Um and you know all of the staff there, Mike Simmons, and all they've just been so good to me over the years of like because at seven I didn't really know what I'd find and they, they've spent time sort of talking me through the dinosaurs so basically an ichthyosaurus for anyone who's not a super nerd on this podcast it's like an, uh, a really prehistoric uh, dolphin so mm. the bit that I'd found was actually the bit that I thought was a toenail was actually an eye socket and the bit that I thought was an ankle was actually um, uh, the beak so the the, the, the the beak of the the dolphin so um, but yeah more importantly in all this story is just like 
we all get tired. We all, you know, have our hard days. And it would have been so easy for my mum to just say, don't be stupid. Mammoths are massive. Just put that down, yeah. you know, which we've all done at some point, right? We've all shut somebody else down. We've all, you know, pointed out the obvious flaw in someone else's Absolutely. plan. And for me, for me, it was just a really good moment to be like, well, wait, what if you just, for one extra second, what if you extra, if you just allow the idea to live, what mm. could happen, you know? Um, so I have to credit my mom with that. And yeah, we should probably get her some sort of Oscar with a wee dinosaur on the top. <laughs> it's amazing. Honestly, like the, the first time I heard that story, Jaw was literally banging off the laptop. And I was like, I did not even like remotely know that dinosaurs came anywhere even close to Ireland. So, I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah, no, that, that North Antrim coast actually has been, and, and since I found mine, they found it, they actually found a full Ichthyosaurus in Larne. So what? I guess it's when, you know, I guess it's when all the plates shifted and when, when the continent kind of broke apart, because uh, obviously there's water between Ireland, England, Scotland, right? And so um, as that activity happened, um, actually, it's, it's a really rich area for a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of those periods in history, the Jurassic period and some of that other stuff. So yeah, but shout out for the Ulster Museum. Great museum. Can't recommend it enough. 100%. Shout out to Larne. Gets a bad name, but there's flipping di- <laughs> dinosaurs in it. <laughs> well, you might not know this, but... I probably Larne, won't. <laughs> Larne recently uh, beat Ballatown 1-0 in their first ever European yeah. qualifier. So, uh, actually, in two days' time, Larne will be taking the return leg back home against Ballatown. And... Um, uh, again, shout out to what Kenny Bruce and Niall Kernin and uh, Tiernan Lynch and all the people down there have been able to do with that club. Unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Lauren FC. I mean, unbelievable. They're uh, they're on the list, actually. They're doing class things. And again, who would have uh, thought? It, so unexpected. I know. I know. We're, we're on the map now. So uh, <laughs> lots of good things coming out of Lauren right now. Epic. A uh, series of questions I ask everybody, kind of series of stock questions. Take these any direction you want. Uh, always love asking people what's the greatest challenge you faced so far and how did you overcome it? Just a light wee easy one for a you know eight o'clock in the morning for you. You know, I've been probably the honest answer is uh I've uh, uh just before COVID, uh my dad uh battled cancer and unfortunately uh cancer one um on that one and uh i flew back and forward i think nine times in six months oh, to try and be with them and be supportive and at the same time my company was running that money and uh we got within two weeks of of bankruptcy Jeez, um, easy, yeah no it's a tough one and it's a tough one to be in charge because you have to keep that you sort of have to keep that from everybody else and uh just personally and professionally it was it stretched me about as thin as i could go so um fortunately the company's in good health right now last year was a nightmare um but Fortunately, we're in good health now and growing quickly. But um, you know, when all the when all the planes crash in your personal life and all the planes crash in your professional life at the same time, uh, it's uh, it certainly tests your mettle. Let's put it like that. So that's the period that comes to mind. And that's, I guess, like you said at the very very start, you know, it's good things about leaving. There's bad things about leaving. That's just one of the real challenges of not being home. You know, and even just on a practical level, it's the do I take this flight now or do I not take this flight? You know, do I wait a bit or do I, do I come straight away? It's, it's, it's impossible really. It is really hard. I will say that, you know, the thing that gives me comfort is, 
I was doing what my dad wanted me to do, right? I was, I he he wanted his kids to see the world. He wanted his kids to fulfill their potential. Absolutely. Um, and you know that that's what gives me comfort. And and he would never wanted me to, you know, be at home just just to be closer to him. So um, yeah. So that that's I take some comfort in that for sure. That's cool. When you say last year was hard, what effect did COVID have on the business? Is this a weird one? So uh, some people are like, yeah. Some people are like, no, terrible. No, COVID was horrific. Uh, we we barely made it through, which was unfortunate because we um we had a lot of good things going for us at the start of 2020 and then mm. it just decimated us. So for me, I was caught in the crosshairs of three very difficult factors. The first is long lead uh, inventory. Um, so I order product, I build product with factories like nine to 12 months in advance, which means you make a forecast and then... Yeah. You, you know, you make a forecast as to what sales you think you're going to be doing, and then you build product against it. Um, the second thing is I had about 48% of my business came from physical retail before COVID. Um, uh, so all stores immediately closed. Um, and then the last thing is I had a product, no one wanted it, because I don't know about you, uh, and our product is absolutely phenomenal. And uh, you can see it all over wildfang.com. However, uh, everybody wore sweatpants for uh, 2020, <laughs> and nobody put on... Nobody put on blazers or button ups or, or good pants. Um, and so nobody wanted my product. So now I'm caught uh, with drastically reduced sales because all my sales channels dried up. Um, I've laid off all my staff, so I have no resources to execute anything. I've got, uh, before I even receive any more product, I've got years worth of inventory uh, backed up because sales have dried up. And the inventory that's receiving every week, um, I don't want and I can't pay for. Sure. Um, and then, None of the customers want the product. So just like crunch from all sides. Um, so really, really hard year for us. Um, and, uh, you know, I think our team reacted to it brilliantly. And we actually spent the year, rather than trying to squeeze out some sort of discount sales, we, we spent the year really focused on the foundation of the business and, and strengthening that up. So um, when the sales did come back, uh, we we were a much stronger business as a result. But, yeah, 2020 was just COVID just uh decimated businesses like mine and i mean we could talk for about three hours on this but portland itself also just in this really crazy cultural moment like it seems to be so much going on there as well yeah i mean look i'm i talked to you earlier about perspective right and 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 i am deeply grateful i'm from northern ireland because you get a very unique perspective that you can take into the world um uh, I am also deeply, deeply grateful I've lived in America for this long because um, it's impossible to understand the dynamics here without living and breathing it. And it's a very unique country with a very unique history, um, and uh, particularly as it relates to uh, racial injustice and racial inequality. And that, particularly as I'm white, that's a very hard thing to understand. And yeah. particularly as I don't, I don't, I'm not from there. And so. Um, you know, the last year was a wake up call for a lot of people, me included, and um, and grateful for that wake up call and grateful. You know, it's a tremendous privilege to not. For, it's a tremendous privilege for it to be a wake up call at all, because yeah. for some people they've lived with it their whole life. So Portland, um, you know, Portland people see on the news and maybe get a bad impression of or whatever else. Portland's an amazing place. It's a bit uh, of the Belfast a effect, probably, here. isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is a little bit of the Belfast effect, and I would also say to you that. I don't always agree with how things uh, were executed. I will also say that if I had to pick between a society that stays quiet and a society that 
raises their voice, I'll always pick the society that raises their voice, even if it's not done so perfectly. 100%. Um, because otherwise you never get change, right? And and I shouldn't need to explain to someone from Northern Ireland why change is really important. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, Portland's a great place and there's a lot of really fun things here. And I would strongly recommend uh, any anybody from Ireland or the UK coming to visit because uh, I think you'd have a blast here. But but yeah, our, our country, uh, you know, I'm American, I'm Irish, and I'm British. I've got all three. Um, oh, nice. All three, very nice. Yeah, all three hold a really special place for me in my heart. And, and I feel very grateful for what all three have taught me and the opportunities they've given me. Um, uh, and I do feel a part of all three. And so uh, the U.S. is going through a real moment of change, and that will continue, and that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, and I, I know that me... You know, me, my family here, my, my, my company, we're all very much committed to it. Um, uh, and, it, you know, like I say, uh, the, being from Northern Ireland, even though you don't fully understand what has happened here, you can relate to it. You sure can relate to it. Yeah. Um, and, and divisive politics and other things, you know, uh, which we've all seen before rather than, you know, unification. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the change that's happening in the U.S. right now. Uh, I'm excited for it to grow and change, um, and and I hope we have a brighter day on the other side. It's unbelievable. Um, most successful moment so far? Do you know, that's actually the hardest thing for me to answer. Of course it is. You're from uh, Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Uh, well, because I don't really feel successful, so that's why that's why it takes a minute. Um, most successful moment? Um it's really hard to answer. Uh, oh my god, I can't believe you're going to stump me with a question. I talk all day. Uh, <laughs> I, I consider moment. it. You know, it's it's uh, like I've I've done well in an interview if there's at least a five second pause. So you know, I can just put you, you know, know put a wee tick here. We uh, we have just launched a major partnership with Nordstrom, which may or may not mean oh, anything to anybody you. listening to this, but. Nordstrom's a $16 billion retailer. It's the equivalent of kind of like a really big John Lewis or a really big, um, you know, ASOS kind of thing. And um, we we just uh, released a, a collection with them that I'm really proud of. It's it's aimed at kind of breaking down some of the gender norms for, for Gen Z, so for, for teenagers and college kids across the U.S. And, you know, we're this little tiny brand by comparison. And, uh, you know, they leaned on us. Uh, both for expertise and and the ability to actually connect with this consumer base, and you know they signed the deal at the height of the pandemic with us um, when all hell was breaking loose and our business was you know almost almost gone. And so uh, I am proud of that. I'm proud that we we managed to get we um, we managed to convince them to do the work with us, and I'm proud of them for being brave enough to work with us mm. um, because. Because it's not their usual consumer and it's not what's expected of them. And anytime you do something different, you're going to face resistance. Um, uh, that's just, that is just fact, no matter what industry you're in. And so we are trying to do something different and it will face a little bit of resistance, but ultimately it's going to create a much more inclusive environment yeah. for millions and millions of people uh, who are kind of finding themselves in their identity. Um, so yeah, I'm, I am proud of that. I'm really proud of that collection. Um, we just dropped one in in late March. We've got another one coming up in August, October, December, um, and yeah, hopefully millions more people find the Wildfang brand through that. So good. Uh, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for coffee or out for a pint, 
dead or alive, who would you take and uh, where would you take them and why? I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to pick a, a family member because that's, that's too obvious and no one else can relate to that. Um, <laughs> you know what? I would probably take Rory McIlroy out for a drink. Yeah. Um, Any relation? Well, here's, mojikum, mojikum. <laughs> here's why. Number one, everybody, everybody thinks we're close relatives. And so frankly, good. my mother, my mother may be fueling that rumor. Um, <laughs> just lean into it it's like yeah i think he's our third cousin <laughs> yeah but well, that is literally what she says but you know what's funny about it in america everybody knows like their fourth cousin twice removed yeah in lauren people barely even know you know their first cousin 100%. like we just don't do, we don't do that right so anyway firstly i would want to clear up whether rory and i are actually related <laughs> and then secondly um I'm working pretty intensely to try and get down to single figures right now and uh, trying to create a little more lag time in the swing Okay. Um, okay. and and really working on the turnover in my hands. And I feel like I would just take him out for an hour for coffee for him to just look at my swing and give me a few pointers. If you could uh, get on the course with him anywhere in the world, where would you go? (sighs) That is such a great question. Um, You know what? I'd probably go back home. Look at that. I would... I would probably go back home and play a wee round at Cairndu with oh, Mr. McElroy. Very so nice. Open, that's my home course. So open invitation, Rory, if you want to go for uh, look, look, em, Emma can get Cairndu. you in. She knows some people. She can make it Rory, happen. Rory, I can. I can. <laughs> uh, it's very, very tight membership list. But uh, we'll, let, we'll, let, we'll give you a free round if you, if you, come, if you come down. Oh, so good. Um, two more. Uh, first one, bit of a podcast cliche, but I absolutely adore it. Uh, if you could go back in time to an 18-year-old Emma and you had a couple of minutes of uh, her time, what would you say? I would say ask more questions and listen to the answer. <laughs> that second bit is so true, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. You know? Ask more questions, listen to the answer. You know, there's something beautiful about being, you know, bounding with confidence and passion and, and all that other stuff, but... Uh, one of my dad's catchphrases was Stan Porter at the door of thought and it never hurts. It never, it never hurts. You can still say everything you want it to right after. Mm. Um, you know, that's not going anywhere, but I've found that I've learned the most certainly in the last, you know, several years when I ask more questions and listen really carefully to the answer. Um, and it's a two part, it's a two part deal because asking the questions without listening doesn't get you very far. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd tell, I'd tell my 18 year old self to, Ask more questions, uh, listen harder to the answer, and, and stand Porter at the door of thought for just a couple of seconds longer. This just popped in my head. I'm, I'm going to try to sneak one more in because um, of the way you worded that. It sounded quite eloquent. Why uh, The Count of Monte Cristo <laughs> as your favorite book? I can't take you know, surprise. Someone... I was like, what is that? Like, I knew what it is, but I was like, what is that doing there? Uh, an ex-girlfriend said to me, um, she said, hold on, let me break this down. So your favorite film is Shawshank Redemption? And I said, yeah. And she said, your favorite book is Count of Monte Cristo? And I said, yeah. And she said, there does seem to be a deep-seated uh, appreciation for lifelong revenge here. <laughs> You're like, my favorite musical like, is also Sweeney Todd. You're like, okay, there's, some, there's something going on here. Like, yeah, you know, actually, my favorite musical is Sunset Boulevard, which is even worse. There you go. Um, and I was like, yeah, I do see where you're going with this. Uh, that may also uh, be maybe part of the Northern Irish in me, but um, no. So uh, <laughs> mine, I love the kind of, I mean, look, I grew up, I was a, a, a really big reader as a kid. So um, 
Uh, I love Alexander Dumas and um, The Code of Monte Cristo is just this action-packed thriller, but um, has a lot of values underneath it and a, and a, a protagonist, a lead character that you can really uh, be inspired by and aspire to be. Um, and he bides his time and he's clever and he waits and he chooses his moments um, and he doesn't lose his temper and, you know, he sacrifices um, and he ultimately wins big, you know, and I think mm-hmm. I think that idea of discipline and sacrifice and, you know, ultimately uh, let the dice fall where they may. And, 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 and at the end of the day, you know, um, it'll be very clear, you know, history will will make it clear what what you achieve. So I think all of that's quite appealing to me. But, yes, you're right on my right. On my right bicep, I have a, a tattoo that says, uh, <laughs> do your worst for, for I will do mine, which is uh, what he he encourages young Albert to scream into the storm, uh, do your worst for I shall do mine, which, yeah, is sort of always how I've tried to face life. I love that. Um, the final question is a bit of a stumper, so please take your time. Um, maybe it won't be, but uh, just a wee forewarning. Uh, what is the kindest thing that someone's ever done for you there's see when you do what i do uh see when you try to build something from scratch and you don't have an alumni here and you don't really know anybody here and i mean it's a really long list to be perfectly honest with you that that's why it's going to be hard to answer this question is because i am so indebted to so many people Mm. that i'm still here to be perfectly honest with you we'll just skirt around Um, it slightly and buy a bit of time like how has being from Northern Ireland helped you? If at all, maybe it hasn't. Oh, massive help. A massive help. Um, I think Northern Ireland and the people, I, I mean, I think the people are one of Northern Ireland's biggest assets. I think they're also one of its most underutilized assets. I think the people are just, they're very, very special. When you've been all over the world, like people in Northern Ireland are something else. They really are. Uh, and you know what's bad? People in Northern Ireland don't know how good they are. That's part of why they're so underutilized um, because of a little bit of what you were talking about earlier, but it is such a spe- special place with special people. Um, how has it helped me? Uh, I have to go to number one, the perspective. Uh, just growing up, you know, where we grew up and what my dad's job was and everything else and, and what we saw unfold around us. Like uh, we, we were brought up very clearly down the middle in our house and very clearly with huge respect for, for anyone's background and anyone's journey. Um, and that has definitely helped me. Um, I feel like I understand conflict of any nature better now um, and have a greater empathy for it. Um, I would say that the second thing that comes to mind, which is probably a little cliched, but hard work. Uh, you know, I was talking earlier about the kind of money, Christo, like Northern Ireland people know how to sacrifice, how to work hard how to put their head down, how to get it done, no complaints. That is very true of Northern Ireland. Um, and then I would say um, just just that generosity of spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people are good to each other, you know. I was just, I was actually just home from my brother's wedding, uh, which was quite funny because I went home, but then I had to quarantine. <laughs> and so I watched the wedding on Zoom from the house, which was funny. <laughs> because uh, I wasn't able to go to it but um, no I was just home for that and just like how good people are to each other um, and how they take care of each other you know like people because we couldn't leave the house like neighbors were bringing over like 
meals and stuff, you okay. know, and sell them in the fridge. Um, it, it, like, uh, I go back to that inherent, when you really scratch the surface and get down to it, people are good people. Um, and they live by, you know, they, they re- there's a strong sense of community and a strong sense of, of care that people take over each other when you get through all the noise. Um, uh, and that's, that, that's special. You don't get that everywhere. Um, so those are the things that it's taught me or I've taken with me. Um, you know, to go back to your idea of kindness. Um, I mean, I'm just going to rattle off a couple cause there really are so many. Um, you know, when I first started wildfire, I couldn't afford, I, I owned a house here. I owned a small apartment here. And I couldn't afford to pay the mortgage on it because I didn't take any salary for a year and a half. And so um, I had to find somewhere to live and rent my place out. But renting my place out uh, just about covered the mortgage. I couldn't make any money on it. And so um, a random guy uh, from my past, Tom, Tom Lakovic, who um, I worked with at Nike. And he was like, oh, I've, I've got an apartment I rent out. Like, what can you pay? Unreal. And I was like, well, I can only pay, I can only pay 400 bucks a month. And I think the apartment was probably 800 or something a month at the yeah, time. He's yeah, like, yeah. that'll do, you know, like, so literally gave me a roof over my head and, wow. and didn't ask any questions. Um, that time that I told you I was two weeks away from running out of money. When you're that close to running out of money, you don't have time to do a roadshow. You don't have time to be like, here's why it's so exciting to invest in us. Here's why. <laughs> so you just have to phone people up and say, I need 25 grand. Let's go. Um, and I probably made 25 of those calls for 25 grand and probably half of them said yes. And they said yes, purely based on reputation and purely based on wanting to help me and wanting us to survive. And, you know, those people literally kept us alive. That's why our brand's still here and why it's had a chance to grow and, and thrive. Right. So um, and then there's the people, you know, I talk a lot about mental health. It's a really big passion point for me. I've I've definitely had experiences with depression, and anxiety, um, frankly I think most people have they just don't talk about it um uh and so part of what I'm passionate about is trying to talk about it and just the people who've picked me up in some of those moments you know um uh I went through a really big breakup a few years back and uh, one of my friends Charlene just let herself into my house and filled the fridge you know and I was like <laughs> I don't I don't even know how you knew there was nothing in my fridge and she was like I'm, I had a pretty good idea you know but like it's it's those moments where you're like, God, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky that there's people that like want to pick pick you up at those moments. Mm. Um, when my dad died, I remember sitting in my kitchen crying, and the same thing happened. My friend Eden just let herself in with the spare lockbox. It was around the side of the house, and I was like, How did you? I was like, How did you? What? And she was like, I saw you through the window, so I wasn't going to disturb you, but I'm here now. You know what I mean? Like, wow. so. I, I've just been very lucky with people uh, and, you know, you, you try to back to my point earlier about picking the energy that's around you. Right. You try to be very selective about curating that energy around you. Um, yeah. And just making sure, making sure you're allowing the right energy around you and making sure you invest in it in return. Um, so it's not a one way street, but yeah, I've been very fortunate. I feel really, really lucky. Uh, uh, the kindness question is not hard for me to answer. I've been very lucky. Amazing. Emma, look, thank you so much for your time today. I thought that was absolutely unreal and uh, I really appreciate you you doing it. No worries. It's been a blast. Unbelievable stuff. Look, thank you so much once again for listening. My name is Matthew Thompson and we're on a mission to share 350 conversations that celebrate Northern Ireland and the incredible people who call it home. 
Massive thanks once again to NI Connections for making today's episode possible. And like I said at the top of the show, you can find out more about our global diaspora, listen to other conversations in this series, and sign up to their free monthly newsletter by visiting niconnections.com. Other than that, hope you really enjoyed today's episode, and I look forward to catching you again soon.